0: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the raywenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Mick and Jake.
1: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the raywenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I'm joined by the ever-insightful Jake Gunderson, and for this episode, I'm really excited to introduce you another of our regular panellists and the latest member of the video team here at raywendlit.com, Caroline Begby. You guys should all be familiar with the new format by now, but just in case this is your first time tuning in, we have two panellists, two topics, and just 20 minutes each to discuss those topics. And with that, let's get started. Now, Caroline, it's customary that we let our guest panellists speak first, So your 20 minutes starts now. What would you like to talk about?
2: Well, thanks, Mick. Uh, Tonight, I'm going to talk about the Pencil, the Apple Pencil. And first of all, I'm going to have a little rave about how good (laughs) the Pencil is and why I think developers will need to add support for it in their apps. I always enjoy new devices because they're faster and thinner and brighter or whatever, but rarely do they change the way I work in the way that the iPad Pro and Pencil have. I'm sure you've seen pictures and reviews of them by now, and if you've been living under a rock, the iPad Pro is the new supersized 12.9 inch tablet from Apple, and the aptly named Pencil is Apple's new stylus. But wait, didn't Steve Jobs say that if you need to use a stylus, you've failed? The Pencil isn't for interacting with the UI, we still use finger touch for that, but it is a replacement for an actual precision writing instrument, such as a pencil. My first impression was that the Apple Pencil is stark white and heavier than you'd think, and the iPad Pro is huge and lighter than you'd think. A lot of the discussion revolves around who exactly the target market is. Well, it's definitely me. Ever since the first iPad and capacitive stylus came out, I've been trying to use the iPad for notes and sketching so that I can reduce the mountains of paper that goes into recycling. But the iPad was much too small, and I never found a stylus that I liked using. I'm not an artist. I'm a dabbler. So I buy all the art apps on the premise that the more I have, the better I'll draw. (laughs) But it doesn't seem to work that way. I am a scribbler and note taker, and I like to handwrite my notes but handwriting and sketching is only satisfying if there's no lag and if you can accurately determine where your strokes are going to end up. And this is why I think Apple has held off making a stylus until the iPad Pro came along. As you know, the pencil only works with the iPad Pro and not earlier iPads, and you need the size and the power of the Pro to get the best out of a stylus. As I said before, the pencil isn't for interacting with the UI. It's very precise, much more precise than a finger touch. You can work out not only the exact touch point, but the exact individual pixel that's touched. You need the iPad working in conjunction with the pencil to get that precision, which is where the Apple Pencil has a huge advantage over its rivals. Apps can detect whether the the user is using a pencil or not and the iPad Pro screen scans for touches twice as fast when it senses the pencil nearby. There's also palm rejection on the iPad Pro and that's automatic even if you don't have a pencil and I think the bigger screen space on the Pro made that worthwhile. For artists and note takers like me, the Pro will be the go-to device. I'm certainly not going to be downsizing for my next iPad and when I'm looking at buying apps if they don't support the pencil and haven't been updated in the last month which was when the Pro came out then I'm not going to buy them. So unfortunately for all the drawing and note apps out there a purchase of the expensive iPad Pro and pencil is probably necessary to be able to support them. So how do you support the pencil and what APIs are specific to the pencil?
0: I wanted to ask, so I've heard that some apps that either that haven't been updated or existing drawing apps out there, sometimes the sometimes the Pencil is laggy and the speculation is that that's because the developer hasn't supported it. Have you seen that? Have you seen apps where you're using it and you're like, this just doesn't feel as good?
2: Absolutely, yes. The, the ones that haven't been updated for the Pencil and not just the Pencil. Um, later on, I'll talk about some of the the new APIs that aren't just for the pencil. Uh, yes, they are laggy. And also sometimes for the uh, on the iPad Pro, the apps haven't been checked out for size class differences. So whereas okay. an app might work on the iPad, it doesn't work properly on the iPad Pro. So buttons okay. might not be as responsive.
0: I haven't looked into the APIs very much, but I do know that there's like a predictive touches part of the api yes. where it kind of guesses where the next touch is going to be is that the part of the api that determines if it's laggy or not or can, can, do you know
2: um no i believe it's um I, do, I don't think touch prediction actually has a great um deal to do with the difference it's mostly the coalesce touches okay and um have you come across the coalesce touches no, I haven't.
0: And, and maybe, and maybe yeah. now's a good time. I mean, I think this is where you're going, but maybe now's a good time to back up a little bit and, and kind of give people an overview
1: of what the new APIs are. Just before we jump into that, though, I have two quick, I promise to be quick, um, hardware-related questions. You mentioned that the pencil was heavier than you expected it to be. How does it, compa- yes. it compare in weight to a, a normal lead pencil?
2: Uh, it's heavier. It feels as if it's got metal inside. So, And when you roll it, it stops as if it's weighted inside. Okay. So even though the pencil's round, it actually stops when you roll it. I mean, if you really push it hard, of course, it keeps rolling. But if you just put it down on a table, um, you would think because it's round, it would just roll away. But it it doesn't, it stops. And that's because of the weights inside.
1: So, I mean, one of the advantages of using a a lead pencil with paper is you can go a lot further before you start feeling fatigue in your hand because there's hardly any weight to, to a lead pencil. Do you think that'll be a problem for people that are using the Apple Pencil for long periods of time if it if it weighs much more than what they were used to in a lead pencil?
2: Uh, no, I've been using it uh, for days and days just writing notes and even though I'm not as used to writing notes so much because I haven't had the uh, uh, something to write with like this, I'm not fatigued at all okay in the, great and using it yeah it's it's real it's a real pleasure to use
1: so it's got that that um the apple quality that people will expect from a piece of hardware
2: Abso- absolutely although i mean it you have to take into account the price as well you'd, you'd expect something phenomenal for the price because yeah, okay. <laughs> it's it's twi- it's twice as expensive as any other stylus out there
1: i'm probably a hundred times more expensive than your standard lead pencil
2: um, at least, I think. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then
1: you mentioned that the pencil only works with the iPad Pro. Now I'm assuming that's because of um, technology within the iPad Pro screen. So this isn't something that can be fixed via a software update and then retrofit to older iPads.
2: Absolutely, that the pencil the iPad Pro um, itself recognises the pencil. So no, you'd never be able to use it with the iPad Air 2. But it's possible they might introduce it with the iPad Air 3. So we'll have to wait and see about that. Before I go on to Coalesce Touches, um, perhaps I should just mention the APIs that are actually specific to the pencil and only used by the pencil. Uh, which is that the pencil works in three dimensions so that you can detect pressure and orientation. You can push down on the screen, and that's called force. And force is also used by 3D Touch on the iPhone 6S. So that's also used by the finger as well as the pencil. But tilting the pencil up and down is altitude, and you can't measure that with anything but the pencil and similarly turning the pencil side to side, as if you're turning a steering wheel, that's azimuth, which are two properties in UI touch uh, that you can get the values for each of those. The best of the new APIs introduced in iOS 9 is what we were talking about before, touch coalescing, and I'll explain what this is. The iPad Air 2 has a 60 hertz display refresh rate, meaning that in optimal circumstances, it refreshes the screen 60 times a second. However, it has 120 hertz scanning for touches rate, which means that you're losing at least half the touch information because you're scanning twice as fast for touches as you can refresh the screen. And the iPad Pro, when it detects the pencil, has a 240 hertz scanning rate, which is double that, so it's even more of a problem. But now there's a method in UI event that returns an array that holds all those missed touches so that you can deal with them all in the next run loop. So on a touch move event, you iterate through the coalesce touches array instead of just using the one main touch that triggered that touch move event. So you can lay down strokes from potentially missed touch points to make smoother lines. And that's the main API, I think, that will make apps that are using this feel less laggy so that the lines that people produce will be smoother.
0: Is that is that Coalesce Touches available on just the iPad Pro or is it also available on the Air 2? That's too and-
2: avail- available throughout iOS 9. Okay. It was introduced cool. in iOS 9. Yeah, so uh, finger touches should be using that as well.
1: I just want to be clear as, as as well, Caroline, about this, because I know in iOS 9 they also introduced some API to deal with sort of predictive touches. The yes. coalesced touches are definitely touches that have taken place. So you know when you're using those touches um, exactly. to map out, you know, whatever it is that the person's drawing with their finger, that these touches have actually taken place. These aren't the predictive ones, are they?
2: No, if you if you actually output while you're running the app, uh, you can run your finger over the screen and do a count of how many touches are in the array. When you're using the finger, it's normally two in the array, which means that you're getting double the amount of touches. But if you use the pencil, then there's normally at least four in the array.
1: And does this go for iPhones as well? Do, do iPhones have as higher? A- Screen scanning rates as the iPads do, or is it no? Just... It's
2: the it's the only the iPad Air two has the highest scanning rate, but I'm sure the next uh, generation of uh, iPhones probably will as well. Uh, the iPhone 6S doesn't have the double scanning rate because I tested that and it was just the same. You just get one if you use touch coalescing on the iPhone, then you just get the one touch in the array. Okay, which so is the same.
1: There's a huge yeah. advantage to. Um, take you know to using coalesce touches because if somebody's using your app and your app is universal or ipad only and somebody's using it on an ipad air 2 or on the ipad pro then there's a definite advantage but if if your app is iphone only then there is no advantage and and to um implementing support for coalesce touches because the screens don't not refresh the current,
2: no not not on the current iphone but um you might want to put it in there to be universal it if you put it in there it doesn't affect it badly so if you're writing a universal app then you can use the same code okay cool now um you mentioned um predictive touch which is really really clever when you swipe a curve Apple calculates where that curve is going and you can access those predicted points in an array just like you can with the coalesce touches. If you draw these predicted points, it looks like the stroke is keeping up with the pencil. And the trick is to lose those predicted points when they're no longer accurate. Uh, My tutorial does this by double buffering. It saves the real touches into one image and the predicted touches into another. And it shows the image with the predicted touches to the user and gets discarded at the end of the stroke. Uh, There's a WWDC uh, video on advanced touch input in iOS. And it shows how the coalescing and the predictive touch fits together on a frame-by-frame basis. And it shows that in iOS 8, That the minimum number of frames from touch to displaying on the screen is at least four frames. And of course, could be more depending on the amount of processing that your app does. But by the end of the presentation, they go from that four frames of latency to an astonishing one and a half frames of latency. And that's just done with the Coalesce touches, touch prediction, and a new core animation low latency feature happens behind the scenes automatically personally i'm not entirely sold on touch prediction i possibly could be doing it wrong but when i was playing with the tutorial app i actually found it quite irritating that the last bit of the stroke that i thought i'd drawn was actually predicted so it disappeared when i lifted the pencil but i'm sure there'll be better algorithms for taking advantage of this touch prediction
1: how far ahead do they predict because, I mean, you, you've raised a very good concern there in that, you know, there is a, there were, you, you've you noticed a difference between your image when you were using yes. predicted touches yes. and then when you lifted your pencil and you finished the stroke, then there was a very yes. obvious flip as it went to use the actual touches. And I'm just wondering how, yeah, how, a- how, how far ahead and if you it- can control that, if there was some property you could set to, to change how far ahead it went
2: it doesn't go that far ahead but it's just a a little tiny um, just blip as you pick your pencil up Um, but I think that if you were recording the speed of the pencil you could probably uh, take note of that and not put out the predicted touches if it's at the end of the stroke if you could somehow detect that I probably not clever enough to do that
1: I probably rely on some crazy math. I know. I, I mean, I obviously edited your tutorial, I was the first one to see it in the editing pipeline. Um, and there is already a lot of math in there just to achieve some of the. I mean, what what is covered in the tutorial is fantastic, and the results that you get just by using that amount of math. But I, I, I sort of imagine that to pick up speed of movement and then, and then you know, determine whether or not and/or how many of these predicted touches to use to get the perfect um effect it would just in- involve a crazy amount of math
2: well i'm sure if you're writing a drawing app you're actually doing a crazy amount of math <laughs> okay fair point so yeah. <laughs> i think most people are probably more comfortable with that than uh, i am um, there is uh, some sample code for advanced t- advanced touches done by apple and uh, called touch canvas and that code has really complex uh Touch prediction in it. Because when I was doing the tutorial app, I was using really basic core graphics code to draw the lines. So I didn't have to go into too much depth on core graphics itself. But I'm sure most drawing apps would be storing the points in a path. And that's what Touch Canvas does. And the app will show you how to discard the predicted touches from the path. And it is quite complex code. And there's some really good core graphics code in there where they transform a stroke to be at right angles to the main stroke. And as someone who's constantly battling transforms, because I'm not that great at maths, I really appreciate seeing that in some sample code. So I highly recommend looking at that sample code.
1: Yeah, we'll make sure that goes in the show notes for this show, Yeah, Caroline. And if your tutorial is out by the time this episode goes out. we'll make sure that's linked to in the show notes as well
0: all right thanks caroline your 20 minutes are up i actually was able to buy an ipad pro and a pencil a few days ago i had to buy i had to buy the pencil from somebody local because they're all out of stock so i had to pay a premium for that but i was it was worth it to get my hands on one right away so i've been playing with it but i haven't looked into the developer side as much as you have so i really appreciate everything you shared with us today what what, ahead, do you,
2: what were your first impressions of it
0: I I really Wait. like it. I really like it. I, I'm not an artist either, and I don't actually... Uh, I mean, it makes me want to become an artist, let's put it that way. Like, it's really neat, and the interaction with the pencil, I really like, even though I don't have... I, I really don't have any personal use for it. But yeah, no, I, I love it. I think it's great.
2: Note-taking and handwriting? I think that that may come back into fashion now we have a decent writing instrument.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that. I, I mean, it... One thing I wanted to do with it the other day was I went to a client just to do some like mock ups and to talk about some development. And I put a bunch of screenshots on my, on my iPad Pro. And I didn't, I didn't have an app to do this, but what I wanted was to be able to write notes on the top of the screenshots and, you know, circle things yes. and stuff with the pencil. So, yes. yeah, I definitely think yes. uh, I will be using it for that. So, before we move on to talk to Mick a little bit, we need to take the opportunity to thank our sponsor, uh, Dream Factory for sponsoring this episode of the raywinderlick.com podcast. DreamFactory is the smartest way to get RESTful APIs from nearly any data source. Instead of building one-off APIs by hand, simply enter credentials to SQL, NoSQL, file storage, email, or remote web service and instantly get a full palette of powerful, reusable, customizable REST APIs and live API documentation. DreamFactory makes it easy to customize API behavior with server-side scripts, And it secures every API endpoint with user management, SSO authentication, role-based access controls, OAuth, and Active Directory integration. DreamFactory 2.0 is a free, open-source platform with pre-configured installers for any playground you want to jump around in. Visit DreamFactory.com for more info and get a free hosted developer environment. All right, Mick, I'm going to turn the time over to you. What are you going to tell us about today?
1: Thanks, Jake. Well, since we're in the midst of an Android feast, the natural topic for discussion would have obviously been Android or something related to Android development. But since we recorded our last episode, something big has happened, something so big that I didn't think that we could simply ignore it. And that's on December the 3rd, Apple made good on their promise and open source the Swift language. Uh, so that's what I'm going to talk, talk about today. Now, the first thing that people might be wondering is, okay, so Apple have said they've open-sourced the Swift language. What exactly did we get for that? And at the top of that list, there's a brand-new site dedicated to the open-source Swift community, and that's Swift.org. Apple also put the entire Swift source base on GitHub, and this includes the entire commit history, which did shock a few people because they weren't expecting that, and the value of having the entire Git commit history it means that you can go back and you can take a look and see how the language evolved over time and just a sort of interesting tidbit with that is the very first commit was by chris latner which is kind of expected uh, and that was back on july the 17th 2010 so you can kind of now understand just how long um, chris and the team have been working on swift now as of this morning I checked and the repo had 22,500 stars, which is an amazing amount of people that have gone into GitHub and, and starred that repo since its release. And it currently has 45 open pull requests. Now, Apple are actively encouraging community participation, which is fantastic because sometimes you get these big firms that they do, they open source things, but they still want to have total control over the direction or, you know, they don't, actively encourage community participation but Apple are very strong in the message on this Um, and you can kind of see that because even though there are 45 open pull requests there are 374 closed pull requests many of which have been accepted and merged or have been added to the list of things being considered for inclusion. I mentioned they've got their entire Git uh, Git commit history there and one of the interesting things that you'll notice if you look through the source is that the We knew the Swift team were actively using Twitter. Chris Lattner's on there all the time and a couple of the other guys. But there's now a fundamental reason why you see that. And that's because when Swift was first released and you had all the early adopters, the guys using the the beta releases of Xcode and and iOS, when Swift 1.0 and prior to that were released, if there was an issue or people didn't quite understand things, the first part of call was always Twitter. Chris and the team have obviously been monitoring this because there's direct links to twitter in the swift source code discussing bugs and then um, fixes for those bugs which i think is great because it just shows that apple are you know they do monitor what people are saying and those communication channels and then they do act on that as well one of the other things that comes with swift which kind of took everybody by surprise was a swift package manager and this is similar to carthage or cocoapods and one of the really interesting things that i picked up out of that was that Orta and Eloy, uh, two of the main people behind CocoaPods, I've already started talking with the team behind the package manager. And uh, I've been sharing data about CocoaPods usage. And I think that's a really good thing because a lot of people these days rely on CocoaPods. Not so much Carthage, but I think Carthage is still gaining a bit of traction. And to be able to share that rather than being a competing force with the Swift package manager, um, and the one that will probably eventually come as default with Xcode, can only be a a positive thing. Another thing of note is that the Swift team have begun porting foundation to Swift, and are also attempting in part of that port to make it feel more Swifty. And this is also available open source on GitHub. If anybody's interested in taking a look at this, there's actually a status page on that GitHub repo detailing the progress the team have made this far, because some things have been implemented, some things have been partially implemented, and some things are on the roadmap but haven't been started yet. But it's great to see that not only do we have this new programming language, but Foundation, which is probably the the biggest framework that anybody uses in any iOS or uh, OS X development, They're actually porting that to make it Swift native and also bringing some changes along the way. They've put up another thing. So, I mean, I'm just going through because this is crazy amount of stuff that they released on December the 3rd. There's an evolution document, which is really detailed and it covers the changes that are coming in Swift 2.2 and Swift 3. And we now know, thanks to this document, that Swift 3 is coming fall next year, 2016. Uh, And this is really good because as developers, we can now monitor the evolution document repo and plan for upcoming changes which is something we've not been able to do up until now and because swift is on github and we can download and build that we can actually test our code against the current development branch so we know what breakages to expect rather than just having things blindly break with each update and release of xcode which has been one of the biggest frustrations of anybody using swift since its inception because of its rapid development something a lot of people are going to be really excited about just because Uh, radar is so terrible is that Swift has its own new bug tracker based on JIRA and this allows developers to view and search existing issues before logging new ones which is just something you don't have uh, visibility and and, um, a feature of in the standard radar bug tracker but there is a caveat to this and that's that you can't use this new bug tracker if the issues can only be reproduced when using Swift in Xcode or via a playground or if it's a bug associated with any tech that's currently under Um, NDA, such as any of the iOS pre-releases. Now obviously with Swift being open source and being able to run on different platforms and whatnot, which we'll talk about in a minute, there is these two different environments. You can now use Swift and run Swift and compile Swift outside of Xcode and that's why there's this separation between the two in this caveat. Uh, Another amazing thing that didn't come from uh, Apple, but Apple have had a hand in it, I believe, and also um, it was came on the same day that Swift was open source. Is that IBM have developed and released a Swift sandbox for the web, and I'll include a link in the show notes so you can go check that out. Which is great because it means that there's this huge potential of Swift being available on the server, and anybody that's doing any iOS or OS ten development, or in future, you know, it might be Android or, or Microsoft Windows Mobile, or any of these people that take swift and port it to their platforms which is kind of one of the driving forces behind open sourcing it is that if you need a web framework you no longer are going to need to learn python or ruby or you know asp.net or any of these other languages you might be able to use, re even reuse some of the code in your mobile app on the server side which is you know really exciting and then finally uh, in this kind of what was delivered section Swift.org also offers a version of Swift for Linux. And, you know, this is huge. Uh, and it comes complete with a Linux toolset, including a Swift package manager, the LLDB debugger, and the REPL. And if anybody wants to learn more about running Swift on Linux, uh, Alexis Gallagher wrote a fantastic tutorial on the site that walks you through uh, standing up an instance of Ubuntu using VirtualBox and Vagrant, and then installing the Swift toolchain and compiling some Swift code. And it also demonstrates how to use the package manager uh, and for anyone interested, I will make sure that link to that tutorial goes in the show notes. I've spent a bit of time there talking about what we got, what Apple released. But I guess, you know, some people are asking, well, well, you know, why is this important? The biggest thing that I had right at the top of my list was transparency. This is something that Apple is notoriously not. We know how secretive they can be. And like I said, one of the biggest frustrations when it comes to Swift is we don't get any visibility, or we get very little bit of visibility. It might only be two or three weeks between a beta release and a and a final public release, with API uh, breaking changes. And then obviously we have to go in and fix our apps, or in our case, you know, update tutorials, update video tutorials, and whatnot. And now we have this huge insight into Swift, where where the team are taking Swift, not just in the immediate future, but in the long term. Like I say. Uh, we've got that evolution document that covers both Swift 2.2 which is coming uh, early next year and then Swift 3 which is coming late next year. So we've got this really good insight into you know how Swift is going to evolve. Um I touched on Linux there so multi-platform support uh, again this is this is a huge uh, leap forward for for Swift. We've already got Linux support we know that I've just I've just talked about it. But you know it's not going to be long I don't think before we see Microsoft and Google getting involved and to put it to Windows and and Android, respectively. This is something that might be a little bit controversial, but it is something that I thought of. You can obviously take the language, you can fork it, and you can take it in a direction other than those dictated by Apple. So, again, just referring to that evolution document, Apple and Chris Latner and his team obviously have a long-term goal for Swift. They know where they, they want to take it and where they see it going. But if us, as developers don't particularly agree with that direction or we have some great ideas that we want to incorporate into the language but perhaps don't fit in with that roadmap. So rather than being accepted and merged, you know, the guys might turn that down. We can fork the language, add those in. And, you know, that causes issues and problems in itself. But I'm sure if we did go down that route, then as long as any forks maintained sort of backwards compatibility with the changes that Chris and and the guys were doing uh, as they move the language forward, then it'd be great to not even just have language, uh, the Swift is a language that we can use on all these platforms, but to be able to choose a version of Swift in the same way we can do with Ruby, because with Ruby we have Rubinius and we have MRuby and we have the standard Ruby distribution, and all of them have sort of advantages and disadvantages o- over each one and different features in each one, I think that would be great to be able to be given that choice. I have a question about that, Mick. I haven't followed the, the the Ruby example that you gave.
0: For me, the idea of having more than one version of Swift that I might need to learn is a little irritating. In the case of Ruby, is that is, does having multiple versions is that an asset or does that make it harder? Or what, like in the, in these other environments where that's happened, how does that
1: play out? Well, I mean, I I've always seen it as an advantage. It's not so much that the the language changes; it's that. Some of the forks or some of the different um, options available may introduce a feature that's not in the standard distribution, and depending on whether or not you want to use that feature, is um, you know will will dictate yeah. which version of the of the language you choose. So, for instance, Ruby, So it's, it doesn't is, it
0: doesn't diverge
1: enough that it becomes more difficult to follow what's going on. That, no, that's right, and usually they maintain backwards compatibility, so they follow the standard Ruby distribution and anything that comes in that will then get merged into their separate distribution. So, you know, if you've written some code in Swift 3 and then you want to go and use this other um, fork and that's based on Swift 3, then your code should still work and then you can add in extra code that would then take advantage of whatever features those developers that have taken that fork involved. But it's not so much like, I, I, I wouldn't get bogged down with the issues around that just yet. Like, I would worry about it when it becomes an issue because obviously this is all hypothetical. But it's the fact that that is now an option for me, is part of the excitement. You know, we can worry with the hows and the whys and the wherefores, you know, when it happens. But I just think, like, as an idea, as a concept, I think that's a, a great. And also, if we submit things to Apple, you know, there's a whole guide on the repo about contributing, and they say, okay, no, this doesn't quite fit in with where we want to take the language. So then somebody forks it and implements it in their fork, and some traction gets behind that fork, then that may put a little bit of pressure on Apple to reevaluate. Whether or not they should accept that feature, I think that can only be seen as a good thing. Uh, If we end up with you know 200 different versions of Swift, then you know obviously that's a nightmare. But I just think as a concept, I think it's a really good one. But I mean, this is one of the things I'm going to touch on it in a little bit. um, But you know, I wouldn't see if Google and Microsoft get hold of this, and maybe some of the Linux guys, and they want to do a you know their own Linux distribution of Swift. That's where I would see. You know, maybe yeah. some some language incompatibilities because you know being brought into the language. But I think if it was just people interested in the language that were already Apple developers, therefore it's in their interests to keep it sort of language compatible, apart from any new feature that they add in. Um, but like I say, it might just be a good way to apply a little bit of pressure. If you know you've got a good idea, and a lot of people end up using that idea that Apple didn't initially evaluate as a good one, um, to get it into into the Original uh, into the original distribution, the one, the official one. Um, yeah. But just on that, like the last point I had about why this is important is contribution, because the developer community as a whole, not just iOS and iOS 10 developers, can contribute and help shape the future of the language. And this is in itself huge because it means the language of choice on these platforms is no longer being designed by and dictated by a small group of people. And we've already seen this. You know, not all those uh, pull requests that I mentioned have been accepted and merged but a, a big percentage of them have and that means that Apple are um, open to contribution from the developer community which is great to see um, so the final thing that I wanted to touch on is kind of what to expect in Swift 3 which is which was obviously we, we had this huge release of stuff on Deceptor, December the 3rd and we had to absorb it all and understand what it was that Apple were giving us Uh, But one of the most interesting things outside of the, the Swift source was they released this document that covered what's coming in Swift 3. So one of the things to come in Swift 3 is a stable binary interface, which aids binary compatibility going forward, and this is obviously one of the big issues at the minute. And this is important because ABI stabilization means that applications and libraries compiled with future versions of Swift can interact at least at a binary level, with applications and libraries compiled with Swift 3, um, even if the source language changes, which is, you know, that's a huge step forward over what we have now. Uh, I've already, you know, talked about Xcode um, releases breaking things at the API level. The next one is portability. So, again, they've got a big focus on portability, making Swift available on other platforms um, and ensuring that you can write portable Swift code. So you, you write it on one platform, you take it on, on another platform that's running Swift, and that code will just work. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but this is where I really see Microsoft and Google getting involved. Uh, Microsoft, especially, have had a hard time attracting developers to their mobile platform, even offering to pay developers to port their apps and putting a lot of development effort into their Objective-C bridge, which kind of is almost a little bit irrelevant now because we've now got this... You know, they, if they'd have waited a couple of months or, you know, a, a little bit longer, they'd have got the, the Swift source and they could have probably done it much quicker. But by making Swift portable, then it means developers can reuse a lot of their code across those multiple platforms as long as these big big vendors are willing to, to take take it and port it to their, to their platforms. Focus and refinement was another one. So even though the language is still young, you know, it's seen this, this really quick, rapid development and it's already accumulated a lot of technical debt, um, which is detailed in in the repo and it mentions that some of it doesn't quite fit in that well with the, the language as a whole and where they want to take the language so as part of Swift 3 they're either going to remove or refine some of that technical debt and then finally is the API design guidelines and this is something that we've wanted a lot you know yearn for a lot at com because so many people coming from so many different backgrounds and different programming languages have their own way way of writing APIs, and that was kind of the reason behind the Swift style guide that we put together. Sort of almost on day one was you know how best to 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 write Swift code. Uh, Apple have put together a draft that's already available at swift.org forward slash documentation forward slash API design guidelines. I'll put that link in the show notes and. This is designed to provide guidance for building great Swift APIs. And there's a ton of stuff, good stuff, already in the guidelines, and some of which which I've already thought about um, merging back into our own Swift-style guide that we ask all our raywenderlich.com contributors to follow. That's what I had to say on uh, the open-source Swift. I don't know how we're doing for time. Jake? We have about two minutes left. All right, well, then I do have <laughs> two, two links that I really want to share um, because although I've already mentioned Alexis's... Um, Tutorial which is fantastic shows you how to get everything up and running on Linux There's obviously I mentioned that the port in the foundation library to Swift and you can go and look on the status document And there are big gaps and big holes in that because they're still working on it So I've got one um, link to a tutorial on the site uh, Dev that I achieved it and this shows you how to plug some of those gaps in the Swift foundation like library by using the GNUC library which is available on, on Linux and then they also have a article called Introducing the Swift Package Manager which goes really deep into using the Swift Package Manager but not just to manage your third party code but also how to manage the compilation and linking steps when building Swift programs which you can think of as if you've ever used a make file um, it's kind of in that same vein so those are two other links that I'll make sure I'll go in the show notes.
0: I do have one question for you Mick. Yeah, I'll go. just
1: kind of cl- clarify. If if do I
0: understand right the fact I mean we can yet now use Swift on Linux but that doesn't mean we can write GUI apps, correct? Like because we don't have AppKit, for example. Like what no, what is, can we do
1: right now with with Swift on Linux? You can just write Swift code. So anything that's in the Swift standard library um and then the little bits of foundation that are there. A- any of the other Apple frameworks aren't haven't been open source, and I don't think there are any plans to open source them. So there's no open sourcing kit or Core Data or Core Graphics or any you know any of those kind of libraries and frameworks. Because I think that you know they, those are almost proprietary. You know those are the ace in the hand that Apple hold to get people to develop for their platform. Whereas Swift is just a language that people interact with those APIs in. So I think I, you know, nobody was expecting to get Foundation. Uh and to see Foundation being put to Swift. I would say based on what we've seen and, and a history with Apple, that's probably what all we're gonna get in terms of open sourcing of the frameworks. All right. Well, our time is
0: up. Thanks again for joining us, Caroline. It was great to talk to you.
2: Thanks. It was a pleasure.
0: Just so you know, we are not putting out an episode over Christmas. We're gonna take a break. Uh, We're going to spend our time with our families, and we hope you do the same. But you can expect the next episode on January 13th. And we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we will catch you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.